Hello and welcome. The following message is from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. So how many of us remember our first job? Uh, I'll tell you about mine. Mine was working the night shift for my dad at his Max Milk store. Do you remember Max Milk? So 11 o'clock at night to 7 in the morning, uh, I would go in and I was on my own, working the cash register and stocking the shelves and loading the fridges and sweeping and mopping and all the fun, all those, all the things. And there were parts about the job that I liked, you know, like I really enjoyed the all-you-can-eat penny candy and helping myself to what was in the bulk bin and like a daily, like I, I kid you not, every day I, I ate one of those, you know, those deep and delicious cakes by McCain. Like I ate one of those a day, man. Yeah, for real. Yeah, so it, there, it had cool parts. I talk, I would talk on the phone with my friends at like three in the morning. I really enjoyed some of the, some of that stuff. There were parts of it that I didn't like. Like that, that was in a season of my life when I was really wrestling with my faith and I wanted to learn more about God. And this job felt like a waste of my time. Like I just wanted to be anywhere but behind the counter at my dad's Max Milk store. And so I figured like I'll redeem the time. And so I would bring my guitar and play it. And I would bring my Bible and read it at work. And and when customers would come along, I was so rude to them because I, I felt like they were an interruption. That's how I thought. Because like I, I believed that this job was a waste of my time and a waste of my talents. It's something that anybody else could do, but certainly not somebody who wanted to be a pastor should be doing a job like this. And someday, you know, when I'm out of here in some mega church somewhere, that's when my life will count. That's when my work is going to matter. And that's what I thought. And I was totally wrong. I was totally wrong about that. And, you know, somebody who agrees with me on this is Martin Luther, the old reformer. He said a long time ago uh, that the idea that the service to God should have only to do with a church altar, singing, reading, sacrifice, and the like is without doubt, but the worst trick of the devil. Do you hear that? How could the devil have led us more effectively astray than by the narrow conception that service to God takes place only in church and by works done therein? Martin Luther says, God is milking the cows through the vocation of the milkmaid. And so today, you know, we're, it's Labor Day weekend, you know, we, and this seems like a really good opportunity for us to talk about work and vocation. And so that's my aim today. What I want to do is, is, first of all, wrap up these Holy Ghost stories by looking at, at the Holy Spirit's role in this super important event of Jesus' baptism. Okay, so what was the Spirit doing there? And then I want to make some connections between this event and the work that we have been given to do in our lives and in this city. All right, that's where we're going. Now, first, we need to ask, what is baptism all about? It's fair to say that there are a lot of different views on baptism, right? Like, is that is that an understatement? Okay, so um, baptism happens when a person comes to faith in Jesus and they believe that Jesus died and that he rose and that they've been forgiven. They have eternal life. And so they've chosen to follow Jesus with their life now. They've And, and they've decided now to, to show that faith and show that decision by going under a bit of water and, and coming right back up again. Okay, so baptism is sort of like communion in the sense that just like communion, baptism is this outward visible sign 
of something that we experience inside. And, and in scripture, there are a number of um, sort of pictures or metaphors for what baptism means. I want to share uh, a few of those. I want to share four, actually, four key pictures or metaphors of baptism. The first one is baptism as a bath or washing sin away, okay? So back in Leviticus, God's people were instructed to wash their clothes and to bathe, sometimes even shave their head, in order to be purified from sin. And the Apostle Paul, he picks up on that idea in the New Testament in Acts 22. He's, he's sharing his testimony and he is, is telling his audience uh, about the, when he was, was told, Hey, what are, you, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized and wash your sins away, calling on Jesus' name. Well, here in, in Paul's mind, baptism is like a bath. And he's passing it on to his audience that baptism is like a bath where we, we go under the water, sort of dirty and sinful and impure and unclean. And we come up a, a second later from under the water with our sins having been washed away. And we are, we're purified uh, from all the uncleanness and, and sin. So that's one of the things that's pictured in bap- baptism. And another is, is it's a picture of, of being clothed, okay? It's a picture of sort of changing our clothes. This is sort of about our identity and, and, and what we wear says something about us. And, and so the Apostle Paul, he picks up on that idea in Galatians 3. He says that all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. So by being baptized into Christ, baptism is a picture of making a decision of the kind of clothes you want to wear or the kind of look that you want to have. It's almost like the waters of, of baptism are a, a change room. You know what? You know when you go into like the Gap or Old Navy or I don't know what the cool stores are these days. What's what's cooler than Gap or Old Navy? I don't even know. But you um you go into the water with with one sort of look just like you do at, at one of these department stores. And then you come out of the water with a different look. It's like there's this makeover, this transformation, because you have been clothed in Christ. So it's a picture of clothing. It's also a picture of an exodus. It's like escaping from an old evil master, like in the Exodus story. Now, you remember in the Exodus story that Israel was fleeing from Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, and they went into the Red Sea. And, um, you know, they're this nation of escaped slaves and they uh, they go into the ocean, into the Red Sea, I should say, and they come out the other side. And when they do, God has crushed the Egyptian army behind them. All right. And in that event, which changed the history and changed the trajectory for Israel, um, the Apostle Paul picks up on that in the New Testament. And he says that that was a baptism for Israel. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, I don't want you to be ignorant of the fact that our ancestors were all under the cloud, and that they all passed through the sea. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And what what Paul's saying there is Israel went into the water under one Lord and under with one master, and, and on the other side of the Red Sea, Israel comes out belonging to Moses and following God. And and and, and he's making the point that for us, baptism is the same. It's our own sort of exodus. It's, it symbolizes how we belonged to one master, but we come up out of the water and we belong to God. All right, so here again, baptism is a picture of an exodus, but it's also a picture of a resurrection. It's a death and a resurrection. And, and this one, the Apostle Paul, he, he brings this one up in, in Romans 6. He says, don't you know that all of us 
We're baptized into Christ Jesus. We're baptized into his death. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too may live a new life. In other words, baptism is a picture of a death. You, you aren't obviously really dying. You're not drowning in, in baptism. But as you go under the water for a second, it symbolizes how the old you was, was put to death. You, you died and you're brought back up. You, you've been raised from the dead by Jesus. Okay, so, so your baptism is a, is a resurrection picture. And, and there's prob- there are other pictures and metaphors in Scripture that we could look at. Uh, but the point here is, is just that baptism isn't one thing. All right? It's a sign of all these things that have changed in us. It's a, baptism is an, is an outward sign of these important experiences that God has done inside of us. And that's why the next question we need to ask is, why was Jesus baptized? Like Jesus, Jesus' baptism, it doesn't really conform to these pictures in the same way because Jesus, he has no sin to wash away. He's got no evil master that he needs to get away from. He's got nothing to repent of. And John the Baptist understood this. In our passage in verse 14, he says, Jesus, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? Like this is all backwards. And Jesus says to him, no, no, no. Let it be, John. It, this is proper. It, this, this will fulfill all righteousness, he says. In other words, there is, there is something important that's going to be left undone if we don't go ahead and have me baptized. So I, I, need to, I need to be baptized. Now, so we need to ask, what is that? Like, what if Jesus of Nazareth were never baptized by John Baptist there in the Jordan? What if that never happened? Well, we can, we can answer that question from a couple of the, the things that happen next. Because you see in the passage, in verse 16, there is the descent of the Spirit. Okay, Verse 16 says that as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And at that moment, uh, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Another word for that word, another word for that alighting is coming to rest, like resting on him. Now, to get why that matters, that the Holy Spirit landed on Jesus in the form of a dove, we need to understand that hundreds of years before this, the prophet Isaiah had said a lot about what it's going to be like when Messiah comes. And and Isaiah, hundreds of years ago, he sort of introduces Messiah like this. He says in, in Isaiah 42, Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I'll put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Okay, that's who Messiah is going to be. Back in chapter 11, Isaiah had said that when Messiah comes, uh, chapter 11, verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And so, like even even if the people watching Jesus' baptism didn't understand what the mean what all of this meant at the time, we know now that as the Spirit came to rest on Jesus, that was a way of showing that Jesus is Messiah. He's the one that they've been waiting for all this time. But there's more because the next thing that happens after the Spirit descends and lands on Jesus in the form of a dove is there is this voice from heaven. Verse 17 says, a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love 
With him, I am well pleased. Listen to that. This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Isn't that just a beautiful announcement? That the, that the father says over his son? Isn't that beautiful? Now, there's this, this old um, heresy that the early church faced. It was called adoptionism. And in adoptionism, it's argued that, um, that Jesus was just a normal guy and he was there in line with a whole bunch of other people to be baptized that day. And the father chose him out of all the other people there. And when the father makes this announcement, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased, what he's doing is he's choosing his champion. He's adopting the Jesus of Nazareth to be the Messiah. And, and that's just so wrong, okay? That's not why this voice matters. The, the voice matters because Jesus' baptism isn't just God showing us that Jesus is Messiah through, with the dove. It's God telling us that Jesus is Messiah. It's God the Father saying, yo, yo it's time. This is my son. I love him. This is my boy. I couldn't be more pleased with him. Do you hear that in the voice? That's why Jesus had to be baptized. So that we would know he's Messiah by the spirit, by the voice. But also, and we need to see this next, but also because right after, because of the work that Jesus would go on from here to do. Okay, so Jesus' baptism, is a, it's a turning point. It's a turning point in the life of Jesus. And there's a New Testament professor in Indiana. Her name is Mary Schertz. And she explains how this is a turning point for Jesus. And she, she says that Jesus, uh, his baptism marks the end of his primary identity as the son of Joseph and Mary, as a citizen of Nazareth, as a carpenter, and whatever else has identified him up to this moment. Now what he's about, clearly and conclusively, is the mission of God in the world. Now what Jesus is about is the mission of God in the world after his baptism. You know, it's, it's really fascinating to me. At this moment in his baptism, Jesus hasn't done anything in public yet, okay? He, ha- he has no disciples. He hasn't called anybody to himself yet. He hasn't invited anybody to follow him yet. He has no miracles uh, that he's performed. He hasn't preached any sermons in public. He hasn't done any healings. You know, he hasn't, he hasn't cast any demons out of anybody yet. And he, and he certainly hasn't had any run-ins with religious leaders who are getting in his face because of the things that he says and does. None of that stuff has happened. All of that comes after the baptism of Jesus. It's almost like Jesus' baptism is his first day on the job. It's like Jesus' baptism is where he answers God's call on his life. And that's why Jesus was baptized. That's why uh, it's in all four of the Gospels. That's why Jesus says his baptism is, is necessary and proper for fulfilling all righteousness. And so what I'm trying to do here is sort of, in a, in, in a way, I'm trying to add a fifth baptism picture or a fifth metaphor for baptism, which is that baptism is a commissioning. Baptism is where God sends Jesus into vocation. Okay, now let's talk about that for a minute. Let's talk about vocation. What I want to ask is, like, do we all have that? Or is vocation only for pastors and missionaries? Okay, we don't usually, we don't often use this word vocation, but it's a a really great word and idea. 
And I, and I would say every Christian has one vocation or, or more. Okay. I actually, I, I think that's really important to say every Christian has a vocation, at least one. Another way of thinking of vocation is calling. And somebody who wrote a lot about vocation uh, was a woman who lived uh, in the last century. Her name is Dorothy Sayers. She was a poet and an, an author. She wrote that she's she really, really helpful for helping us understand vocation. She said, the apostles complained rightly when they said it was not right. They should leave the word of God and serve tables. Their vocation was to preach the word. But the person whose vocation it is to prepare the meals beautifully might with equal justice protest it is not right for us to leave the service of our tables to preach the word. Friends, that's what we mean by a vocation. All right, that's a vocation. And, and in my experience, maybe not yours, but certainly in my experience, a lot of Christians are very dualistic when it comes to our vocations. We've divided our our vocational sort of mindset into into sacred work over here for for special people who are who are paid to serve God and teach scripture and you know because they're they're really spiritual important people and then there's every other kind of work which is secular work and it's less important and these are like the jobs that help us pay the bills these are the things that just sort of keep us busy during the week uh, until we can you know get home and and serve God at church or serve God in, in our spare volunteer time and that dualism, that, that is totally foreign to Scripture. Totally foreign to Scripture. Because in, in, uh, the, in Colossians, for example, the Apostle Paul says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, Paul says, it is the Lord Christ you're serving in your work. The Apostle Peter, in 1 Peter uh, 4, he says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. And, and here's the thing. When Paul says, whatever work you do, you're doing it for Jesus. And when Peter says, each of you use your gift to serve, those instructions, those commands, those are impossible for us to keep if the only people in the, in the church whose work really counts, if the only people whose work really is for God are pastors and missionaries, okay? If, if the only people whose work counts for God and counts for the kingdom are, you know, Bible teachers, writers of Christian books, Christian counselors, explicitly Christian vocations, if those are the only things that count in God's kingdom, we can't make sense of these instructions. The only way this makes sense is if all of us have a God-given vocation. And we do. We do. So my vocation, I, I get to pastor Benediction Church in Hamilton. Okay? So my vocation is, is I'm a shepherd. Uh, before that, I had a different vocation. Where I was a, I was a stay-at-home dad for Maggie for a couple of years. That was my vocation during that time. And, and Heather, my wife, has a vocation. She, she serves as a registered dietitian at the Children's Hospital at McMaster. That's her vocation. She and I share a vocation as in our marriage. That's a, that's a vocation. We share a vocation uh, of parenting our children. We share the vocation of, of trying to be good neighbors for Hamilton. 
that's part of our vocation as well. And and so y- you have vocations as well. You, your vocations are, are probably different. Like you, your vocation might be a student. You know, what does it look like to honor God as a student? What does it look like to serve God as a pediatrician or as a lawyer or as a psychiatrist or a teacher? What does it look like to, to honor God in your work as an engineer or as like an accounts manager or a firefighter or a social worker or a graphic designer or a nurse? And in scripture, all the work that God gives us to do, all of it equally can glorify God. Okay, all of it can equally benefit other people. All right, every what I'm saying here is every Christian's work matters. Every Christian's work is is sacred and holy because it's not just a job. It's given to you by God, and it's your vocation. It's a vocation. Do you, do you know that your work matters? I hope that you do. Your work matters, whether it's in the home or outside the home, wherever your work and your vocation take place. God is renewing the world through your vocation. God is bringing his peace and his shalom and blessing to the world through your vocation. And through your vocation, God is building his kingdom. Do you you see that? We get to join God in our work, in the work that you and I do during day to day. We join God in his work of building his kingdom. And if we do that faithfully, if we do that in faith, in, in, in submission to his spirit, it is a little bit closer to on earth as it is in heaven. I really believe that. So, so listen to this again from, from Dorothy Sayers. She said, The church's approach to an intelligent carpenter is usually confined to exhorting him not to be drunk and disorderly in his leisure hours and to come to church on Sundays. What the church should be telling this carpenter is this, that the very first demand that his faith makes upon him is that he should make good tables. Do you hear that? The very first demand that his religion makes upon this carpenter is that he should make good tables. That is, I just so believe that. And now, even if we didn't have these instructions from Peter and Paul, Even if we didn't have the the garden story where God puts the man and the woman in the garden in order to work the garden and to watch over the garden, which certainly has implications for us and our work, doesn't it? But even if we didn't have that, even if Jesus' baptism story, even if that were all the, the scripture that we had, we would still know that our baptism and that Jesus' baptism is, is like a call into vocation. And, and here's why we would know that. We would know that because the father who loves Jesus also loves us, right? The same father loves us. He, this father who is creator of the universe and controller of the universe, he interrupts all the work that he has to do in that moment in order to announce to the world, you guys, this is my son and I could not be happier with him. And that father Friends, that Father in heaven loves us like that too. Friends, if you are in Jesus, if you're in Christ, this is how your heavenly Father feels toward you. We would also know that this baptism is a baptism into our vocation because the same Spirit who rested on Jesus also rests in us. He's in us. Now, we we don't have the dove. We haven't seen the Spirit descend on us in the form of a dove, but... The Spirit leads us 
Haven't we been seeing this all summer? The Spirit strengthens us. He sends us. He empowers us. He gives us wisdom and confidence. He reassures us of our acceptance with God and what God has done in us. And and best of all, he's actually in us. He's actually in us. So Jesus' baptism corresponds to ours and to our vocation because the same Father loves us, because the same Spirit is in us, but also because the same temptations await us. We're going to face the same temptations as Jesus. Like immediately after Jesus' baptism, what what happens? Chapter 4, verse 1 is the very next verse. It says that then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Like Jesus' vocation begins, and the first thing that happens is the devil tempts him to achieve his vocation apart from God. He tries to throw him off course and cheat so that his vocation is no longer a holy and a sacred thing, but a very earthly, worldly, wicked, satanic thing. Now, we've studied these temptations before. We know that Jesus was tempted in all of the same ways that we will be. The devil tempts him, go ahead, take a shortcut, make, turn the stones into bread, you deserve it. The devil tempts him, go ahead, make a name for yourself, throw yourself off the temple, and, and God's going to just amaze your audience. He's going to perform these amazing tricks, and you're, you're going to really put your name on the map. Go ahead, make a name for yourself. And the devil tempts Jesus in the third uh, temptation. You know, if you just bow down and worship me, you can skip all the pain and suffering. You can have all the nations of the world worshiping you. Forget the pain and the suffering. Forget it. And, and we're going to face all of these same temptations too. And what I think is so helpful and so encouraging is when we look at Jesus' baptism, Jesus' baptism didn't protect him from temptation. It prepared him for it. Jesus' baptism didn't protect him from the opposition he was going to face. It did, his baptism didn't protect him from the problems and the, the difficulties that were going to come soon. But his baptism did prepare him for it. It did prepare him for it. And, and just like Jesus, we have the Spirit. We have the Father's love. We have work to do. And that's pictured in baptism. That's what baptism is a picture of. Jesus' baptism is like the first day of his vocation. And I'm suggesting, guys, I'm suggesting that we look at our baptism as the first day of our vocation. Now, what if we did that? What if we looked at our baptism as the first day of our vocation, our calling to, into kingdom ministry with God in whatever work God has called us into? What if, we, what if we saw it that way? What if we saw our work, not just as a job, but as a vocation and a calling? Do you, do you believe that would make a difference in your life? What if we believed that our work is holy? What if we believed that, that through us and through the work that we do during the week, that God is actually building his kingdom? Like, would that change how we go about our work? I, I think it would, eh? You would. And so the way I want to wrap this up is in, is in prayer, but uh, this is going to be a little bit different. And, and so what I want to do is offer uh, a Labor Day prayer or a Labor Day blessing over the work that we do. And what I'm going to ask us to do is just if you're able to, to stand, to take a posture of open hands. Uh, if you're listening to this at home, perhaps to meet you just wherever you are, if you can, 
just take a take the posture of a of receiving God's blessing. Open your hands, close your eyes if you're able to, um, and and just join this part this Labor Day prayer by when you when you hear me say we Lord we pray, you're going to answer with Lord bless the work of our hands. So here we go. For those who see their work as a calling from you. And those who can't see the point or their purpose of their work, may they be more faithful and competent than they ever thought possible. Lord, we pray. Lord, bless the work of our hands. For those who are unemployed or underemployed and struggling due to COVID, striving to make ends meet, Lord, we pray. Lord, bless the work of our hands. For those who work in stressful, dangerous, high-risk conditions without enough support, without enough appreciation, protection, or compensation. Lord, we pray. Lord, bless the work of our hands. For those whose healthcare jobs provide mental, emotional, or physical health, where their choices can mean life or death, where the ability to help is limited by the other's willingness to heal, and the risks of our own burnout. Lord, we pray. Lord, bless the work of our hands. For those in management or supervisory roles, may they provide a just and a loving work environment. May they treat their colleagues with love and service and dignity. Lord, we pray. Lord, bless the work of our hands. For those whose office work feels disconnected from the blessing that they bring to the world, and when they feel swamped by endless emails, meetings, reports, and plans. Lord, we pray. Lord, bless the work of our hands. Just a few more of these here. For those who work as ministers, whether in the church, the parachurch, or on campus, let others come to know Jesus through them. Lord, we pray. Lord, bless the work of our hands. And for students, for students whose learning takes place in the home, or in the public, or in the separate, for the Christian schooling systems, Lord, for their safety and growth as disciples of Jesus, Lord, we pray, Lord, bless the work of our hands. For parents, as they strive to protect their families from the world and prepare their families for the world, we ask God for grace and peace as they balance their paid and their unpaid vocations. Lord, we pray, Lord, bless the work of our hands. And, O God, that all your people would find their place in your mission as ambassadors of Christ and agents of your kingdom. Lord, we pray. Lord, bless the work of our hands. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Benediction Church in Hamilton, Ontario. Feel free to copy and share these resources, but please don't alter the content in any way. We invite you to visit us online again soon at www.benediction.church for more teaching and information about how you can join us in serving and praying that it would be in Hamilton as it is in heaven.